0: It is my delight this afternoon to talk about the four Brahmaviharas, or heavenly homes, as the translation of Brahmaviharas, or what I sometimes call the four flavors of love: metta or loving kindness, compassion, mudita or appreciative joy, and equanimity. So I'll be weaving in the talk between talking about these Brahma Viharas, as they're traditionally talked about as qualities that we develop in relationship with other people, and talking about them as qualities that we can develop and orient towards our experience in our Vipassana practice. I was thinking about this afternoon. In some ways, we have um, metta and equanimity kind of bracketing compassion and appreciative joy. So metta is the basic friendliness of heart. Equanimity is the, uh, you could say, the gracefulness and the letting go and the letting be and the kind of understanding that we live in a world of change and, and that there are limits to what we can control. So those like bracket, you could say, this deep understanding of love. And then in the middle, we have compassion, which is um, friendliness oriented towards suffering. And appreciative joy, which is friendliness oriented towards success, happiness, delight. And I think of these four as a template for um, caring for ourselves, for caring for others, for caring for our society, without going under. (laughs) So caring and connecting without going under. They're the way that we can develop a strong, vibrant, a love uh, that's strong, vibrant, and realistic. A lot of people in the groups were today and even last night uh, were dealing with a lot of intense stuff. And so this feels to me like, I plan to talk about this anyway, but it feels like it works out really well because we need this sense of love to hold the um, difficulties that come up in practice. To me, I don't believe that we can do a, a... We can deepen our insight practice if we don't have some foundation of love. We need that safety. So starting with metta. Metta is this um, basic friendliness. Apparently that's the more true translation than kindness. But they're close to each other. We don't have to uh, split hairs. (laughs) But friendliness, a basic friendliness or unconditional goodwill. We need that in order to um, survive, you could say, the journey into the fullness of our humanity, which includes the journey into our shadow, the journey into our beauty. So unconditional goodwill friendliness. Um, another way that it's described in the um Literature, the discourses is, is in this one is the way it's more often described as the absence of ill will. So you don't have to set the bar too high. <laughs> <laughs> the absence of ill will. So just, um, just <laughs> releasing aggression towards ourselves and towards others. Having some kind of respect ourselves, our experience, and respect towards others. Whether we like them, don't like them, agree with them, don't agree with them. So we wanted to develop metta as an emotional truth. As a, um, you could say, a visceral understanding. Not an intellectual understanding, but an understanding through our whole being that's what i'm trying to encourage when i do the metta practice in the way that we're receiving it is like what does it feel like in our being this kind of unconditional goodwill this unconditional friendliness this lack of aggression there's this monk in um burma that um we we used to visit when i would go there to practice and um, he died a few years ago i think he was 99 when he died and we called him the Happy Monk because he was so happy. He was just uh, always kind of bubbling. Which it, Most of the Burmese are a little laid back. They're, they're, they tend towards being quieter. And he was just ha, ha, ha. Always, and uh, one time my teacher asked him, she said, "You know, tell us something about metta. And he, he goes, Meta. metta, metta, metta. That was his teaching on metta, right? Like, to really get it through our whole being. So metta, as we strengthen this quality within ourselves, um, we, we, we learn about the benevolence of life. So we have a negativity bias as humans, and we tend to look towards problems, and we tend to be attracted to problems and perseverate on problems. And we tend to overlook the good. And so the metta is a kind of training in balancing our attention, balancing our minds and hearts to see what is good. And it's not denying that there's problems in life, but it's opening it up a little bit, not to get stuck on only problems. So as we um, practice this and learn about the benevolence of life, we start to trust life more. And that was in that quote yesterday that I read, um, or maybe the first day, I don't remember, when I said something about trusting life, everybody went, and there was this collective like feeling. It's it's this metta that teaches us um, that we can trust life. It's not always going to be easy. Or in, in, we're not. We don't mean it that way. It's not pollyanna but But we trust that there that there is this foundational benevolence. And the way um, that there is this foundational benevolence is because we have developed it in our minds and hearts. stream. I heard that one time um, Albert Einstein was t- asked, he, he was asked, if you could ask one question uh, you know, to get the answer to what would it be. You know, Albert Einstein, who, you know, studied vast <laughs> reaches of physics and all this, he said his question was, is the universe friendly? And I, my answer to that question is, um, it's not a, there isn't an objective answer. There's only a subjective answer to that question. And the universe is as friendly as our heart is. And so metta, we develop that friendliness in our hearts. And we find that the universe feels friendlier. Sometimes I do this very um, deliberately, like in an airport, because airports don't feel very friendly. (laughs) But I'll be practicing metta, kind of just People happy, happy. I swear they treat me differently. What's this sub- objective truth? Who knows? But but the airport becomes friendlier, doing that. And in Burma, um, metta is considered a guardian meditation, a protective meditation. As I was saying, I think it protects us as we go deep in our practice. It protects us from getting overwhelmed with um, fear and suspicion of the universe. <laughs> but it also has this protection in its kind of strength. That metta is a strong quality um, that is strong in flexibility and inclusivity and softness. Not how we tend to think of strength but actually more strong, stronger. Something that's hard is brittle. It breaks easily. Something that's soft and flexible is stronger. It can take impacts. (laughs) One of my favorite uh, teachers is Lynn Jensen from the um, Zen tradition. And he writes in, This was in the Shambhala sun in November 2010. A few years after I took up Buddhist practice, I took the four bodhisattva vows, the first of which is, though beings are numberless, I vow to save them all. All beings, I asked? People, birds, trees, stones? All beings, I was told. How, I asked, do I save all beings? The answer, by letting them in. Though I didn't quite grasp the implications of it at the time, in taking the vow to save all beings, I committed myself not only to save my family, friends, and the checkout clerk at the grocery store, but my supposed enemies as well, all the people I most feared and disliked in the world. I'd undertaken a practice of total inclusion. I read the whole paragraph for that last line. I'd undertaken a practice of total inclusion. That's what metta is. So the practice of total inclusion of other beings and the, and the practice of total inclusion of our truth, our experience. Either way, you can look at it. So we ask ourselves, where do we draw the line? Where do we draw the line with what is included and what's not, what's exiled? what's not okay, what is okay, within ourselves, each of us.
1: <clears throat> My teacher, Michelle, used
0: to say that when she started practice, 95% of life was unacceptable to her. <laughs> <laughs> I can relate, that sounds about right. <laughs> so we, we up how much of life is acceptable to us. Right there, we're cooperating, right? When life is unacceptable to us, we're not cooperating with reality. But the more that is acceptable, the more we cooperate. I um, had a student for a number of years who uh, developed Parkinson's disease while I was um, her teacher. And she was so incredible. I was so impressed with her because she really just turned towards her experience. And at one point she said to me, she said, Parkinson's is my meditation now. And she said, I wouldn't trade this experience. How's that for the practice of total inclusion? She said, tell people the Dharma really works. If you practice, it's there when you need it. So inspiring. So as we practice this total inclusion, we, we're melting the ice mountains in our hearts. And we're making room for life to be present within us. Somebody named um, Phil Shepard wrote um, a book, something, the subtitle was Coming to Our Senses in the 21st Century. He said, to be present in the world means making room for the world to be present in you. I love that, that that interchange. (laughs) We're not just going out there to touch the world. We're letting the world in to touch us. So we're melting the barriers that prevent that flow with life. Somebody named Romain, Roman, Roland Romain, something like that. (laughs) He said, there's only one heroism in this world, to see the world as it is and to love it. Wow, that's what we're trying to do, see the world as it is and to love it. takes strength. have to call forth our inner hero or heroine to do that. One time I asked the happy monk, um, I asked him what why he was so happy, I thought this would be good information to know. (laughs) (laughs) And I really expected, I don't know, some kind of wisdom-y answer, not self, I don't know, something, you know, emptiness, or I don't know. And he says to me, because there's no ill will in my heart. I have no ill will towards you. I have no ill will towards the snakes. I have no ill will towards anyone. (laughs) You did it just like that. So really, essentially, that he was pointing towards metta, the absence of ill will, how they say it in Burma. It's pretty high recommendation. There was rumors he was fully enlightened. (laughs) He seemed like it. (laughs) And as we practice metta, we often come up against, um, this kind of self-improvement model that, that we're so steeped in, kind of in Western Buddhist Western, not Buddhist, Western psychology, you could say, the, the sense that um, we need somehow to be fixed. It's actually capitalism, you guys. It's like <laughs> keep us constantly busy thinking that we need something better to improve ourselves. And um, whether it's a new car or a, or a new um, weekend enlightenment intensive, mm-hmm. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> they, you know, capitalism runs on dissatisfaction, so we're, we're steeped in this, in this philosophy. There's this um, guy named Tony Robbins. You guys have probably heard of him, this big uh, self-help guru. He said... When you set a goal, you're committed to C-A-N-I, constant, never-ending improvement. You've acknowledged the need that all human beings have have for constant, never-ending self-improvement. There's a power in the pressure of dissatisfaction and the tension of discomfort. This is the kind of pain you want in your life. (laughs) We're all steeped in that. (laughs) And I would say that metta uh, directly confronts that, um, that thinking. That thinking really disrails our practice because what we see is is we see that being human is messy business and then when we see all the messiness, we think we're doing it wrong and we think that we have to fix it. and. Um, And then we judge ourselves, and then the self-critical voice starts giving us all kinds of helpful advice, right? And and wow, it's so intense. Somehow we have to make ourselves into a more adequate, presentable person, and practice is going to help us do that. Well, no. Tema Chodron says, Loving kindness towards ourselves doesn't mean getting rid of anything. Metta means that we can still be crazy after all these years. (laughs) We can still be angry after all these years. We can still be timid or jealous or full of feelings of unworthiness. The point is not to try to change ourselves. Meditation practice isn't about trying to throw ourselves away and become something better. It's about befriending who we already are. The ground of practice is you or me or whoever we are right now just as we are. That's the ground. That's what we study. That's what we come to know with tremendous curiosity and interest. I can I'm not going to have enough time. I have to start jettisoning things now. <laughs> mm. All right, I'll save that story in case I have time later. It's a good story, but it's a long one. <sighs> no, I... <laughs> I want to read you something. I when I, it's so great these days when I forget to bring things I want to read. You just Google a line of it and you can find it online. Anyway, all transformation comes out of deep acceptance. So so we're not saying that we don't transform through practice when we're saying that we're not trying to change ourselves. It's not that we don't transform. It's that the transformation comes out of the acceptance, not out of the trying to change ourselves. And we have to learn that over and over. Thank you, Ann. We have to learn that over and over and over again because we don't believe it. But we start to see it for ourselves. We start to see that when we're with anger, with great, care and attention, that um, it it does transform. That over time, um, it loses its power, for example. But it doesn't come by exiling anger. If we exile it, it just grows stronger. It comes by connecting with it with kindness. So this is a great um, commencement speech by Norman Fisher, who is one of my favorite and teachers also. Oh, I just lost it. Where was it? Oh. Spiritual practices are unlimited and and imaginative and especially full of love. They come from love, they encourage love, and they produce love. When you do them over time you find that you are living in a world of love. And for your life and for our lives collectively, in the times to come, we are going to need love, lots of love. In good times, love is lovely. Nothing can be better. And in hard times, love is necessary. It turns tragedy into opportunity. Something difficult and unwanted becomes a chance to drive love deeper, to make it wiser, fuller, more glorious, and more resilient. He wrote that in 2014, but perhaps it's useful today. So let's move on. Compassion. So compassion is a quality of caring about suffering. So it's It's this kindness turned towards and touching, willing to touch and be with suffering. So it's responding to suffering with care rather than our usual conditioning of aversion or denial. True compassion for me has a kind of um, bittersweet feeling or sweet poignant feeling. There's um, this pleasantness of compassion through the connection, through the, the, the aliveness of a heart that isn't separating itself. That's the, kind of the, the, the sweet feeling. But the poignant or the bittersweet feeling is that we're connecting with suffering, right? It's poignant. There's this fullness of, of the vulnerability of being human of the vulnerability of the human condition, which includes suffering. Compassion hardens the edges of suffering. So when we practice compassion, when we encounter suffering or what's difficult, um, we, we practice softening into it rather than getting hard in the face of it right our natural tendency is to get hard in the face of suffering to protect our hearts and we have many versions of hard <laughs> aversion denial anger resistance so we practic- it's actually not resisting suffering And whatever is our personal story is like our our ground where we learn about compassion. Whatever is our personal suffering is our opportunity to practice how we learn about suffering and how we learn about compassion, how we learn to meet suffering with softness. Sometimes I even, like, if there's something, if there's suffering happening in this being, sometimes I even think of like um compassion is like touching it with cotton balls. <laughs> yeah, you've even used that image of kind of cotton balls. <laughs> you can see, right? It it starts to ease into that connection. I think I probably said with every group, if mindfulness doesn't cut it, try compassion. You <laughs> know, sometimes mindfulness feels like it's just not doing it, right? <laughs> but but Compassion is kind of the heart that's big enough to hold this, hold it. Oh, it's suffering. This is suffering. Sometimes just saying that will help us to hold it. I also, in a couple of groups, talked about um, an image that my te- teacher uh, used of um, E.T. E.T. in the movie. At one point, he he goes like he goes, "Ouch." and it's like right it's like softens right so we can actually do that with ourselves it can be like oh ouch and it's a way of softening into it bringing a kind of warmth so tomorrow um, night in Madison I'm giving a whole talk on compassion and I've also given the same talk in, in Minneapolis. It's a talk on um, what I call the four phases of compassion. So I'm going to touch on them a little bit um, today. If you live in Madison, you can get more tomorrow night if you want. But first is this warmth, that there's this aspect of compassion that is warmth, right, and connection, this tender poignancy. I was thinking, for some reason, it reminded me of um, wildflowers in the high desert. Last summer, I did a retreat in the mountains of Colorado, and you know, way up high on the mountains, nine, ten thousand feet, um, there'd be these wildflowers blooming in these rocks on the side of the mountain. And I was so impressed with them. <laughs> I was like, wow, you, guys, you go, guys. <laughs> because it's like the conditions weren't so favorable. And yet they, they, there was this tenacity um, of, of, of spirit, it felt like, to grow and to blossom in this environment. And yet they were so fragile, too, right? And it just reminds me of us humans. There's this way that we we are all vulnerable and fragile and yet we're like wildflowers. We have this tenacity and this desire to blossom whatever our circumstances are. And so for me, the warmth of compassion is connecting with that in all of us. You know, like understanding our shared vulnerability. And we really get to that through our own suffering. Suffering is a great tenderizer. You know, we we, we we really start to understand. Um, it, it, it's a, it brings us into the human family. <laughs> Something similar to this story that I'm going to tell you came up in one of the groups. Um, but I remember one time I was sitting in the meditation hall at IMS, at Insight Meditation Society. I was feeling really lonely. And so I was being with loneliness and... Um, it was painful. <laughs> and then at one point, I just had this feeling like, oh my god, all over the world right now, there are people feeling lonely. And there's no human that gets through a, lo- a life without feeling lonely. And it was such a, like opening in co- for compassion for me. I still remember that moment. It was 20 years ago, maybe. But it was like, oh, OK, this is, this is hu- human. This is being human this vulnerability to loneliness and it, and it was it was okay it was actually beautiful because i felt connected to others so so the warmth comes through our understanding that we're all in the same boat there's this Compassion is this relationship of equals, you could say. It's not pity where you're over there and I'm over here. It's, 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 it's a recognition of our shared humanity. That's the warm part. Then the second part of, of, of compassion that's really important is, is power. That, that compassion is actually a very powerful state of mind. Our state of heart, state of heart-mind. True compassion has this power of not crumbling in the face of suffering, of having the resilience and strength and kind of fierceness to face suffering. And sometimes we really have to call that quality out in our own hearts and minds and remember that that's part of compassion. It's not wimpy. Compassion is not wimpy. And so we we find within ourselves that sense of power and strength and fierceness and we might have to dig really deep when it's really difficult. Whether personally, societally. We can have this fierceness of, of wanting to alleviate suffering, of wanting to take care of ourselves and to take care of others. But we have to find that place within ourselves that, that is strong enough to not crumble. And we have it. Just have to dig for it sometimes. Call it forth. Become familiar with that. I will not be crushed by this. Sometimes we have to call forth that spirit. I will not be crushed by this. Sometimes that's the aspect of compassion that we might need to focus on more than the warmth. You know, you can focus on the aspect that we need. Another aspect of compassion is action. Doing something. Mm -hmm. Compassion is is the feeling of care and it's also the wish and the action to alleviate suffering. So there's that whole um, part of like, what is an appropriate response here? What can I do? And doing that, that's part of the empowerment of, of, and the power of compassion. It's like doing something often helps us not to crumble, not to be crushed. So remembering that, that action is part of compassion. And then a whole other part of compassion is a certain kind of lightness. This is bringing in the equanimity. The equanimity has to be with all of them. <laughs> and so the equanimity of um, aspect of compa- compassion is some um, ability to maybe have the bigger picture, a wide angle, or um, some, um, I call it spunk, <laughs> spunkiness. <laughs> I'm thinking of this book that I read on joy, where um, the Dalai Lama and um, Desmond Tutu were meeting together. It was it was the Dalai Lama's 80th birthday, and they spent a week together. And this book is about their week. And the two of them are just full of spunk. And they're two like archetypes of compassion. So how does that work, right? Like how does that work? they they they, they, they have a lot of fun. They've both seen tremendous amounts of suffering, like mm-hmm. suffering that we can't most of us can't imagine. And yet they're spunky. They're light, right? So so it's like that's part of compassion too. How do we find that part? We can still celebrate life, we can still laugh certain resiliency, perhaps, as part of that lightness. It was making me think this afternoon of, um, I worked for, I learned a lot about compassion by working in the inner city for 16 years, and um, I worked a lot with Puerto Rican women whose lives were very difficult. Um, Most of them had mental and physical health issues, and uh, racism, of course, and poverty, and many of them had kids who had been swept into the streets and violence and, you know, all of just uh, suffering that um, when I first started working there as a young, naïve, white woman, it was a little shocking. (laughs) I was um, unprepared, shall we say. I was in my early 30s and, uh, wow, I was kind of blown away. But over time, I really learned uh, uh, from them. And one thing I really came to appreciate was their resiliency. These women um, were so strong in the face of what I don't know if I'd been in the same situation. I don't know how I would have handled it. And um, I remember specifically we had this group, a women's group, that went on for years and years and years. We met every week. And we would laugh and laugh and laugh. They knew how to laugh. (laughs) They knew how to celebrate, celebrate little things and take care of each other. So that's part of the resiliency, of, you could say, of compassion, is we need all of that. We need the community. We need the laughter. Yeah. Otherwise, we're in trouble. <laughs> and this one leads into the next um, the uh, Brahma Vihara of mudita, or sympathetic joy. Appreciative joy. So compassion connects with suffering. Appreciative joy connects with success, happiness. And um, it's a really good balance, right, for compassion. It's a, it brings balance because it's, it embraces the fullness of life. Not just, there is not just suffering, there's also joy. There's also beauty in life. The Buddha called it the mind deliverance of gladness. That it frees the mind, it gladdens the mind, opens the mind. So celebrating, traditionally celebrating other people's happiness and success. The Dalai Lama said it increases your chance for happiness 7 billion to (laughs) 1. You can delight in other people's happiness. But many of us also teach it um, delighting in our own happiness, not to overlook that, what's going well for us. And even taking it out and just delighting in the world around us. Zigar Kontru Rinpoche calls it rejoicement therapy. Rejoicement therapy. Kempo Rinpoche was once asked to tell a story about the many three year retreats he had done. And he said two sentences telling about the happiness he felt one time watching the sunrise. So with this Brahma-vihara, we're noticing what's pleasant and what's beautiful around us. And one way we can practice it is really to notice um, our sense experience, to pay attention to what's pleasant with sense experience around us. The beauty of of the purple (laughs) fleabane. Or the beauty of the sound of the owl's call or the trees around the lake, the colors, the arc of a shadow in the grass. As we get quieter and quieter, we can um, remember more frequently to pay attention to and to absorb the beauty around us as a way of nourishing our hearts and strengthening them and balancing them so that we can hold the enormity of suffering that we come in touch with. And as we meditate more, our senses get more refined so we can actually appreciate more of the beauty. The colors become brighter. The smells more intense. We appreciate subtlety. Like the beauty of a day like today. Right? It's subtler. It's not like bright sunshine, but it's beautiful in its own way. An anonymous quote I heard is, people from a planet without flowers would think we must be mad with joy the whole time to have such good things <laughs> about us. I mean, really, we take flowers for granted, but they're the most amazing things. Even that little purple fleabane I saw was an amazing, amazing thing. So beautiful when you can give your attention to it. And so there are many opportunities for this kind of attention, and um, it's, it's really in some ways slowing down to enough to absorb it and training the mind not to get stuck always on suffering. Joanna Macy has a great book called Active Hope, How to Face the Mess We're in Without Going Crazy. I highly recommend it. And she talks in this book a lot about protecting our enthusiasm a great phrase protecting our enthusiasm in her case when doing work to protect the planet because it's a big and a long-term project so how do we protect our enthusiasm in meditation i think of this appreciative joy as a way to protect our enthusiasm I think of it maybe like sustainable agriculture. We talked about um, not being hunters, but being farmers. But then how do we farm sustainably? You know, if we're gonna be sustainable farmers, we need to nourish the soil, right? We need to um, take, what, take what we, what's the appropriate amount, <laughs> not everything, but we have to pace ourselves. <laughs> And we've really learned um, unsustainable ways of being in the West, in modern capitalism, for example. Um, It's all about take everything right now and, and get make everything produce right now and so we do that with our meditation we sit down like okay let's produce something here (laughs) we want production (laughs) productivity (laughs) productivity in our meditation right (laughs) and we and we burn out the soil that way we and we burn ourselves out that way so how do we um, protect our enthusiasm how do we make our meditation sustainable How do we not deplete ourselves? So moments of beauty can be one way to do that. Somebody once asked Suzuki Roshi a question about consciousness. And he said, I don't know anything about consciousness. I'm just trying to teach my students to hear the birds sing. (laughs) Yeah. Let's just hear the birds sing. I try to fill my life with lots of beauty as much as I can. Pick wildflowers, put them on the table, have a bird feeder. I love to watch the birds. I was going to say an inexpensive way to um, access beauty, but sometimes they eat a lot. <laughs> and then the squirrels, of course, come and then <laughs> feeding the whole neighborhood. <laughs> mm. So I didn't make this up either about the kind of needing the um, the beauty and the pleasant. The Buddha in the in a book called the Visuddhimaga, which is not the Buddha; it's a commentary called the Visuddhimaga or the Path of Purification. They talk about um, what each uh, what people who are dealing with a lot of aversion what they need. So suffering might bring up a lot of aversion. So you could say people dealing with a lot of suffering what what is needed, and they talk about the kind of meditation hut, the kind of food and everything, and it's like, need to have a clean, well, bright, sunlit uh, meditation hut, and the pathway has to be lined with flowers, food should be really tasty, the sheets should be fine silk, the servants should be good-looking. I mean, <laughs> it goes on and on <laughs> about what, what is helpful. And it's because all of that is like to soften, to soften, to soften, to help. Um, now, if people are experiencing a lot of greed, I'm sorry. <laughs> you're supposed to have like a bug-infested meditation cut and crummy food and coarse sheets and uh, ugly servants on but but the, uh, the idea is that there's nothing it, it's supposed to help um, I don't know if I totally agree but it's supposed to help reduce the craving I would think it would bring it up <laughs> But anyway, there is, this, there is this understanding that it's helpful for our meditation if there's a lot of suffering or there's a lot of aversion to balance it with pleasantness. And so often when people are having a lot going up on in their meditation, there's just way too much going on, it's too intense, too much pain or suffering, I say go outside, look at some flowers, sit in the, you know, outside or something, find, drink some tea, find whatever you can. Uh, limited options on a retreat, but find whatever you can to, to nourish the heart. And that's good for here, and that's also good for, um, our lives. Our lives. It can... It can help us be more balanced around suffering, so we can be better help to others. I know some a few people have talked about feeling guilty when um, when when we take care of ourselves in that way, and um, I think that that we can cultivate the understanding that um, the better that we take care of ourselves, the better we can serve and that it's not helpful to burn ourselves out, for example. We can't see as clearly, we can't be as effective when we're burnt out. So mudita keeps us from sinking and drowning in despair with the depth of suffering that we come in touch with. It's a protection from despair. Voltaire said, "Life is a shipwreck, but we must not forget to sing in the lifeboats." <laughs> That's what Mudita is singing in the lifeboats. <laughs> I want to end with a Wendell. I end this section with a Wendell Berry poem that um, that I, I. It's one of my favorite poems in the whole world, and I think it describes Mudita. The peace of, many of you know it, the peace of wild things. When despair grows in me and I wake in the night at the least sound in fear of what my life and my children's lives may be, I go and lie down where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water and the great heron feeds. I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come into the presence of still water. And I feel above me the day blind stars waiting for their light. For a time I rest in the grace of the world and am free. So the last um, Brahmavihara of equanimity, in many ways that's what we've been talking about with gracefulness. Equanimity is the... uh, Yeah, I'll expand on it in kind of a Brahmavihara way. Equanimity is the understanding that we live in this world of change and that we can't control others and that we can't control circumstances we can influence them, right? but we can't control them and it's this kind of poise given that truth it's this kind of gracefulness given those truths it's an understanding, part of it's an understanding and acceptance of the limits of what we can do We don't go down easy on that. <laughs> we, 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 we fight against the limits of what we can do. But when we can accept the limits of what we can do, then we know some peace. It's like accepting the, the truth of the reality. It's like the serenity prayer. God grant me the peace to accept what I can't change the courage to change what I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. A great equanimity prayer. So with equanimity, there's a certain um, willingness to respect the unfolding of life within ourselves, within others, within our society. There's a challenge, right? And there's this um, understanding that there's a bigger picture we may not understand. I think of equanimity as a kind of, um, it's a very subtle kind of joy, a subtle, quiet kind of joy that is not an argument with the way things are, that is cooperating with the way things are. By its own, by its own self, that could be um, detachment. But it's combined with the other three. So it's not detachment. It's a lively engagement with life. But its you could say it's not arguing with what we can't control. It's a great blessing in relationships to, to kind of let people be who they are. <laughs> That's its value in the Brahma Viharas and relationships with others. It's a kind of respect for other people's paths and destiny. But it's also a kind of respect, you could say, for our own experience and uh, and the own unfolding of our of our own path where we often would have all kinds of ideas how it should be going. <laughs> and um, to respect that it has its own rhythms and its own pacing. I know I've certainly many times thought that my path should be much faster, and then when I've looked back over my years of practice, I look back and I go, oh, you know, maybe that changed about as fast as it could. (laughs) It's just we humans are kind of turtles. (laughs) We don't like to believe that, but we are. The Third Zen Patriarch said that, um, talked about the realization of being um, without anxiety about non-perfection. I like that. We learn to be without anxiety about non-perfection. Our own, the world's. the way things are. And then um, with this growing equanimity, there's also this growing sense of fearlessness of this um, trust and fearlessness very close together. Trust that we can hold life however it presents itself. That we can um, that we don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be afraid of life because we know how to meet it. We know how to hold it. So that's a, a deep equanimity is that kind of trust. It's trust in our own capacity too. And we get that trust in our capacity by, by doing the work, by facing whatever it is that comes up here on the cushion in our own lives. And so we have these four together. They're a great package. (laughs) The basic friendliness. The friendliness turned towards suffering and the sense of compassion or caring. The friendliness turned towards delight and beauty, that sense of gladness. And then the equanimity underneath all three of them, holding them. This is the way things are. That's a great equanimity phrase. This is the way things are right now. Well, I was correct in not reading that story because it is 5.25 (laughs) and time for us to end. Come to the talk tomorrow night if you want to hear that story. (laughs) Um, I love the Brahma Viharas. They give us some hope, don't they? They give us some hope that we can meet this world, and they're a great combination with them, um, with the insight practice. I read recently a friend of mine, a friend, teacher friend of mine, said that scholarly, uh, that scholarly work or um, research has suggested that it's possible that the Buddha taught. The path of love of of metta and this path as a as a liberation practice also. It's commonly said that the vipassana practice is the liberation practice and that the the brahma viharas are the supportive practices. But there, there's some um, research that says in the earlier sutras that the Buddha taught them both as liberation practices. But then. Patriarchy squashed. <laughs> All right, I'll be quiet. <laughs> Patriarchy squashed, the love part. <laughs> Demoted it. <laughs> I don't know if that's true or not, but, but my own experience really is, is, it feels like a liberation practice to me, the metta practice, and that it takes the heart as far as the, um, the insight practice. So maybe we'll we'll elevate it back up again. We'll talk about the patriarchy some other time. (laughs) That's just it for a couple minutes.